0: Good morning. This is Greg Roman on WWDB 860 AM Philadelphia talk radio here with Gary Gamble, general editor of the Middle East Forum. And we are here with Middle East Forum Century Radio. Just a few hours ago, a missile strike from Yemen landed at Abha Airport in Saudi Arabia, injuring 26, waiting to take off on their domestic flights all over the country of Saudi Arabia and to international destinations. This is at the same time when Prime Minister Shinzo Abe of Japan marks his first visit as a Japanese premier to Iran since the Islamic Revolution. It is certainly a hot morning in the Middle East. We'll get to those subjects in more. But we'll also be joined today by Fatima al-Asrar, a senior analyst with the Arabia Foundation to talk about Yemen and Iran's incursions in the region. We'll also be joined by Nirvana Mahmoud, a doctor and commentator on Middle East issues, originally having written for many different publications throughout the Middle East, and we'll also ask her for her opinion on today's events. But getting started, we'll begin with the news that came out from the last week since we last joined you on Wednesday of last week first in sudan protest leaders have agreed to end their civil disobedience campaign launched after a crackdown on demonstrators and resume talks with sudan's ruling generals an ethiopian mediator said on tuesday according to sbs news he was quoted as saying the alliance for freedom and change agreed to end all of its campaigns from today said mahmoud drear who has been mediating since a visit by ethiopian prime minister abi ahmed last week both sides have also agreed to resume talks soon On a handover of power to a civilian administration, where we expect elections in Sudan nine months from now. In Iran, the United States said yesterday that Iran's work with advanced centrifuges is a breach of the nuclear deal Washington already pulled out of, expressing its concern while repeating that it is open to holding talks with Tehran. In a statement to a quarterly meeting at the UN's nuclear watchdog, the IAEA, International Atomic Energy Agency, and their 35-nation Board of Governors, The U.S. also said that Tehran's acceleration of uranium enrichment would not lead to Washington backing down in its policy of trying to isolate Iran. Attempting to generate negotiating leverage, one kilogram of uranium at a time will not bring sanctions relief, U.S. Ambassador Jackie Walcott said in her statement to the board. In addition, we also have a Lebanese-American with dual nationality having been released from an Iranian prison yesterday. Boarding a flight with, Iran- with a Lebanese foreign minister, Ghassan Jabril and landing in Beirut last night. Whether this is a part of a wider play of Iran coming back to the table, releasing a prisoner in order to get sanctions relief, I don't know. But Gary, what do you think Iran is trying to do right now? With on one hand increasing their uranium enrichment, on the other releasing political prisoners.
1: I think I, I think both. Uh- Political prisoners and uranium enrichment are tools that they turn on and off in order to extract concessions from from the West. And they're very good at it. They're very good at figuring out what the right balance is to to get what they
0: want. So beyond that, we also see Iranian involvement in Syria appearing in the news. With the United States on Tuesday, according to the AP, imposing sanctions on one of Syria's most prominent industrialists, Summer Foes, known for high-end holdings and introducing the Four Seasons Hotel in Damascus, and also for allegedly enriching President Bashar al-Assad. These Syrian sanctions have been announced also at the same time when, just on Friday, the U.S. introduced sanctions on Iran's largest petrochemical giant, uh, PTSG, I think this is the name of the company. And what we saw in that case is that the U.S. is now not just abating sanctions, but they're increasing it on Syria, Iran's ally, and also on different sectors of Iran's economy. It's not just oil anymore. It's not just the mining sector. They're also now putting it on petroleum and oil derivatives. Do you think this is likely to increase Iran's hostility to the U.S.? Or do you think that this may be, with the release of the prisoner yesterday, something where they're saying, okay, we might play ball. We might give a message to the Japanese prime minister who's visiting us today. What do you think we're expecting for the next week?
1: I think it's unlikely that Iran is preparing to make any major uh, change or accommodation, um, but I I think the United States sanctioning uh, Syrian allies of Iran is is a major step that hasn't been done before. If they take it a step further and start sanctioning Lebanese allies of the Iranians, or specifically Lebanese allies of Hezbollah, then you're gonna then that's going to be a whole new ball game, and I I think Iran's going to have trouble coping with that.
0: Pivoting from Iran, we also have their neighbors, Iraq, swearing in the new prime minister of Iraq's Kurdistan province, Masrur Barzani, a day after his cousin was sworn in as its president. Masrur Barzani is the son of longtime Iraqi Kurdish leader Masoud Barzani and has been serving as national security advisor for the autonomous region since 2012. He won the votes of 87 of the 97 members of the region's uh, 111 seat chamber with uh, a few abstaining. More than his cousin received when he was elected president late last month. Prime Minister elect Barzani will have one month to form the autonomous region's cabinet. Let's talk about the Kurds for a second. So, we have the Kurds who are fighting uh, or who were fighting against ISIS in uh, northeast Syria. We have the Kurds who are rebelling right now against the Iranian regime. We finally have a return to some sort of normalcy of Kurdish governance after the Iraqi parliamentary elections in May of last year. There was also regional elections that took place, but Barzani took a little bit longer to be able to form his cabinet. And then we also have a renewed Turkish operation and incursions into northern Iraq fighting against Kurds. What's the Kurd's stake right now? in June of 2019 of either trying to get more autonomy in the north of Iraq, of trying to establish their own fiefdom in northeastern Syria. How likely are they to succeed in fighting against the Turks in southeast uh, 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 Turkey? What's going on with the Kurds today?
1: I think it, it's very difficult uh, to, to tell uh, what's going to happen to, in terms of uh, Kurdish pursuit of, of stronger autonomy. They, they clearly overreached, uh, what was it, last year when they They uh, deployed in in Kirkuk and eventually had to leave. Um,
0: Right, that was, I think, in in September of 2017. Right, when they had declared in their independence referendum, and then what we saw was 60 uh, brigades of Shia militia being led by Iranian generals, kicking the Kurds out of their hard-won territory, hard-fought and hard-won territory in Kirkuk, which was access to something like 70 percent of Iraq's oil reserves. They really dealt themselves not an economic death knell but a major setback in terms of being able to be, uh, have some semblance of independence and the resources to be able to support that.
1: You're, yeah, you're right, they, they overreached. It was the independence referendum that lined everyone up against uh, what the Kurds were doing. And you know, the fact is, if they hadn't done that, they might still be in Kirkuk, which, which doesn't mean that they, they'll be able to enforce a long-term claim to it, but they, they could bargain it for something else, and they, they sort of lost that unilaterally by overreaching. So So I I think they're going to be cautious is my expectation.
0: Now, beyond that, we also have news coming out of the Palestinian Authority and its relations with Israel and the administration's efforts to prepare for the Manama Bahrain Economic Peace Conference due to take place on June 25th and June 26th of this month. Egypt, Jordan and Morocco have announced that they will attend the U.S.-led conference, along with Qatar, the UAE and Saudi Arabia, who have already confirmed their attendance when they will put forth proposals for boosting the Palestinian economy, U.S. officials said on Tuesday, according to Al-Shak al aswat Global financial bodies, including the International Monetary Fund and World Bank, also plan to be present, and the Palestinian leader's decision to boycott the conference has raised doubts about its chances for success. Lebanon also announced on Tuesday that they will boycott the conference, along with a few other enemies of Israel. Now, you have the Palestinians having every major financial contributor in the region. I mean, the Saudis give money, the Qataris just pledged a billion dollars, not, not not a, to, to mention their $400 million injection of cash to the Palestinian Authority and to Gaza that took place a few weeks ago. And you also have some heavyweights there that we otherwise would not expect to attend. And the U.S. is shepherding. All of these Arab delegations being led by their finance ministers, their economy ministers. And we already know that the IMF and the World Bank have significant projects, both in the West Bank and in Gaza. But the people who will benefit the most, or the leadership of those who will benefit the most from this peace conference, again, say no, they won't show up. Do you think this is going to be something that A, the Palestinians will be able to kill because they're... Boycotting the conference, and B, if they're not able to do so, will the Palestinian people rise up and say, "We demand you go to this conference," or if you don't go to this conference, find us a new injection of foreign direct investment?
1: I, I think you're you're better placed to, to give an answer to that than I. But my my, my impression is that uh, it's unlikely we're going to face a lot of public pressure to uh, engage with the Trump administration. Certainly not Palestinian public pressure.
0: Here, here's my take: what I, what I think is going to happen. At the end of the day, it's not the Palestinians who control the Palestinian economy. It's Israel. Who decides on what goods go in? Who decides where the tax remittances go to? Who gives authorizations and permits to be able to build new public infrastructure projects? That's at least for the West Bank. For Gaza, the ability to have projects being cashed there, the materials for those projects still have to be approved by the Israeli Crossings Authority through their Ministry of Defense. I think this is an opportunity for the Israeli Cogat uh, coordinator of government activities in the territories, to speak directly to Palestinian local officials rather than have the case of trying to negotiate centrally with Ramallah. After these messages we'll be joined by our first guest. The Middle East Forum promotes American interests in the Middle East and protects Western values from Middle Eastern threats. The forum sees the region with its profusion of dictatorships, radical ideologies, existential conflicts, and weapons of mass destruction as a major source of problems for the United States. Accordingly we urge bold measures to protect Americans and their allies. Read more at www.meforum.org Or check us out on Twitter at M.E. Forum, the Middle East Forum, protecting your interests.
2: Every day the men and women of the United States Marine Corps demonstrate their commitment to defend the American way of life. Since 1775, We have served our nation as a force in readiness. From combat operations to humanitarian assistance in every corner of the world. No matter where the mission takes us today or wherever our country needs us tomorrow, we always remember the land we call home. As Marines, we take a stand for each other. For our nation, for us all, the few, the proud, the marines.
0: Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. Now, for those of us who are listening or even watching at home, this is our third time that we're trying to be able to get our video broadcast to work, and I think the third time is the charm. But if you're having some technical difficulties tuning in, and you can't even hear what I'm saying right now, our technician's working on it, and we should be able to get back online in just a few minutes. But for those who are listening on air or via the internet, I am very happy to announce that we have our first guest joining us today. Good morning. Hi, good morning. Hi, Fatima. Good morning. Hi, good morning. And uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Our guest, Fatima Al-Asrar, is a senior analyst with the Arabia Foundation. Prior to joining the Arabia Foundation, Al-Asrar was the MENA director for Cure Violence, a research associate at the Arab Gulf States Institute in Washington, D.C., a Mason fellow at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard University, and an international policy fellow at the Open Society Foundation from 2006 to 2012. Fatima worked as an advisor for the Embassy of Yemen in Washington, D.C., and earlier in her career served as a program officer for the Department for International Development in Yemen. Fatima, you have to have some opinion of what happened this morning after we heard that a rocket launched by the Houthis, actually we're now getting reports saying it's a cruise missile that was launched yes. by the Houthis, landed on an airport in Saudi Arabia. What does this do to the conflict in Yemen? Is, is this escalation?
3: Yeah, this, this um This dangerous escalation, I think, um, started recently after the um, U.S. standoff with Iran. And I think it's a way for Iran to say we can destabilize U.S. interests in the region and we can effectively use our um, network to launch these attacks whenever it's, it's convenient or whenever we want something. So it's Iran's way of saying maybe we don't want a full confrontation with the United States, and this is what we can do. Um, Houthis have been, um, you know, perhaps uh, in, in the UN system and trying to uh, effectively ne- uh, if, negotiate for peace. The UN envoy, Martin Griffith, um, has um, helped really secure some real wins for the Houthis. But they are jeopardizing these wins with the stance that they're having right now and with launching these attacks on Saudi Arabia. And I think this makes peace a distant reality for Yemen.
0: So let's put yourself into the position really quick of Mansur Hadi, the incumbent president of Yemen, at least in the internationally backed government of Yemen. What are you thinking right now after your allies have had their airport struck? I mean, you've been fighting now in this internecine conflict for five or six years. It goes back, if we really want to go all the way back, to the origins of the conflict to the 40s and the 50s with the uh, Yemeni Civil War. You're the president of Yemen. What are your policy options?
3: I mean, listen, this is the problem. The president of Yemen is in a really, really weak position. I mean, it was the Houthis who have um, uh, overthrown the government in 2014. And I think one of the things that people forget is that this, th- this government is actually representative. It was a transitional government. It came immediately after the Arab Spring. It was not supposed to last forever. It was just temporary until Yemenis were able to get back on their feet after overthrowing Ali Abdullah Saleh, who ruled the country for, for about, <coughs> excuse me, for about maybe 30 years. And um, this was just a, a, a government that was set in place to prepare Yemen for something bigger, better, and a democratic transitional process. It was the Houthis who seized that opportunity of of just weak. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't say even weak, of just a moment of transition, and they thought this is their time, and they did strike the iron when it. It was hot. Um, they overthrew the government, uh, and uh, ever since, they've maintained a monopoly on, uh, on power. Um, Hadi was placed under house arrest. Um, the entire cabinet members were given a choice to either join the Houthis or, you know, or, or leave, and it was just a choice of you're with us or, or you're, you're against us. So the Houthis are not really leaving Yemenis with a lot of options. They the and the problem here also is something that the international community does not realize is that the Houthis have um, a sectarian element that is extremely dangerous, and also they run based on a on this this. This ideology of, of being anti-Western, of being anti-American, and anti um, just, just anything that they perceive Western. So their slogan is death to America, death to Israel, um, curse on the Jews, and victory to Islam. And Yemenis find that offensive. This is not a militia that, uh, or, or an entity that they want to ally with so we we find them to be a fringe um, uh, fanatical element uh, that no one wants to subscribe to, but they were able to advance because they've weaponized themselves. and um, you know they've they've created this dangerous conflict in Yemen and uh the government was not in a position to respond and this is why it asked Saudi Arabia and the rest of the arab countries to help um and and i think that with the longer the the conflict um uh, goes on in yemen the the more advantageous it is for the houthis because they get to control the, the population in the country um they they get to um completely, um, uh, I would say, blackmail international organizations into giving more funding for these people that they control because they're really starving them to death. And um, they, they just, you know, continue squashing opposition. So they become the only authority in the country. And then they thrive through just illicit means of of getting, you know, weapons, arms, black market, um, and trying their best to um, just become a military force. One of the things that I'm concerned about is the forced um, recruitment of of you know staff and institutions and also children.
0: Right, child soldiers are a big problem there. From the Houthis, they'll put a 12-year-old with a suicide vest in the middle of a battle. They won't have any qualms of surrounding a kindergarten with rockets. I mean, yes, we've seen we, we, we've seen similar tactics. My background comes from uh, both in the U.S. and Israel, with their Ministry of Defense and Department of Defense. We see the same tactics being used by illicit actors. But the issue here isn't so much just the Houthis, but it's also their primary backers which are the Iranians. And I'd like to ask you to uh, expand upon the point of if the U.S. Senate succeeds in overriding, or or just the U.S. Congress succeeds in overriding any uh, supplying of information or of weaponry to the Yemeni transitional government, to their backers, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia and to the United Arab Emirates, this is a win for Iran. It's not just a win for the Houthis to be able to wage open warfare against the Yemeni government recognized by the United Nations. But if you stop supplying American armaments to the Saudis who are backing the recognized Yemeni government, the Houthis win. And the Iranians do by de facto, right?
3: Yes, I think, I think you know the Houthis are taking advantage and Iran is taking advantage of the fact that um, the world that we live in is the world where we all seek peace. Um, but they're not seeking peace, and this this becomes just a fundamental problem. So, when the Houthis, for example, go to the United Nations and say we have an interest in peace, or when they publish, uh, when their leader publishes an an article in the Washington Post saying I'm all for peace, and then they're sending you know ballistic missiles and cruise missiles into Saudi Arabia, and recently drawn attacks, y- you know that they're they're not really saying any of that in good faith. I um I think that uh you know the the congress is really confused about what's going on in Yemen and uh they see the humanitarian crisis which I think has been reported only from one side um and and I think that the United States uh people in congress uh, the even the American public has been misled and to a certain extent taking more responsibility for what's happening uh, than, than is our responsibility to take. So uh, n- none of the reporting focuses on how the Houthis are actually uh, and on purpose placing Yemeni civilians under these conditions in order to say, you know, this is exactly the responsibility of the West, and it's not our responsibility. And the people who are actually paddling this rhetoric are the Houthis, the Iranians, and to some extent, Al Jazeera, um, by focusing on making all the catastrophe in Yemen uh, a result of the Saudis and the Americans. This is exactly the Houthi rhetoric that we are running into. And I'm not saying that that there is no responsibility. There sure is some responsibility, but, but Saudi Arabia and the United States should not bear the, the biggest aspect of it. And at the end of the day, if you stop supplying arms to Saudi Arabia, I don't think that changes anything in Yemen. Uh, the, you know, it, it will, yes, it will, of course, be a win for Iran and a win for the Houthis, uh, because it shows that the United States is, is not consistent. It cannot fully and consistently back its allies. Um, uh, it can change. It's, it basically demonstrates that the United States is not a reliable partner. Right, and uh, then
0: we, we, due, we've due seen that before point. with the uh, with the Iran nuclear. My, my colleague Gary has something to ask. So,
1: what what needs to happen for for the internationally recognized Yemeni government and its coalition allies to win this war? You know, you you just mentioned that if, that if we cut off aid, it's not really going to affect the situation in Yemen, which is a lot like saying if we increased aid it wouldn't really affect the situation in Yemen that this is largely a, a symbolic uh commitment that if we break Iran uh, will have a propaganda victory which which will reverberate but setting all that aside you know Americans don't like to uh we have an expression here uh, uh poor good money after bad um, yeah. if, if a situation is lost we we tend to you know, try to try to find ways not to get involved. What has to happen for for there to be a victory here?
3: I mean, I think I think um abandoning abandoning the allies altogether is not a good idea, but having some type of strategy for the United States in Yemen is a good place to start. Right now everything is sort of done I mean, Yemen is really dealt with as as a problem in Saudi Arabia's backyard. The United States has to realize that this is also a problem for that they meant could be a problem for the United States. You know, you have to have a strategy, and I don't think there's a strategy in place right now. Um, uh, so everything is, is, is being ceded to the, to the Gulf allies. Um, And this means that, you know, if the United States could recognize what are the threats in Yemen, what are, you know, potential capacities for peace, then it could maybe help chart a better way to help the allies uh, do this. But for now, everything is being reported as, you know, Saudi Arabia is doing this and that, I mean, to be honest with you, Saudi Arabia doesn't have any experience in war, uh, in warfare. And I think, you know, uh, from that perspective whenever we see the um massive amount of casualties that resulted from airstrikes i mean you know y- you tend to think why are the saudis doing this uh, one of the so in other so in that, other words us yeah.
1: having less skin in the game is not going to help resolve the conflict it's going to make it worse i've, I've actually
3: yeah. argued before that you have to have a little bit more skin in the game in term in order to help um, minimize the civilian deaths right because you know giving more technical support to Saudi Arabia getting in, involved in in that perspective might might do some some damage control and especially now at a time where the Houthis are using dra- drone capabilities to attack Saudi Arabia and Yemeni cities as well this is th- this should cause us all to think Iran is upping its support to Saudi Ar- to um to the houthis militarily and at a time where you know we are abandoning our allies allies in the gulf
0: so let me and let me is, let me give you a policy prescription that i think that we have to uh, offer here on this show we've had two instances of direct american kinetic involvement against the houthis the first was in october of 2016 after houthi missiles targeted the uss mason an american destroyer going through the gulf of aden the u.s subsequently destroyed three houthi radar installations there along the coast the second instance was when we had some targeted assassinations which were taking place against al-qaeda in yemen which was still in houthi controlled territory i'm not saying the houthis back al-qaeda they're actually fighting against one another but those were the two only instances of i think of u.s troops or armaments being used in yemen itself let's offer a third policy prescription The US conducts strategic or tactical bombing against Houthi sites. It recognizes that civilian targets in Saudi Arabia like airports and in the UAE where we had the largest airport in UAE struck by a Houthi drone that took place only a few months ago. And we consider that those targets are are, are in, in kind American targets. If the Houthis strike the Saudis, we will strike them. And we do it in a way that's offensive, it's fast, it's lightning warfare, it's shock and awe. We don't put American troops on the ground, but we make a statement saying we're not just providing technical assistance, but we are going to degrade their offensive capability to wage war against our allies in the Yemeni transitional government. This strategy also worked during Operation Mantis. In 1988 when the US deployed its forces and destroyed half of the Iranian Navy now I'm not saying strike Iran that's a whole different ballgame but if we're able to get enough surgical strikes out to degrade the Houthi government's capability to wage offensive warfare and to blunt their qualitative military edge in asymmetrical warfare against Saudi Arabia against the UAE maybe that will bring them to the table your thoughts
3: Um, I think um, this could go both ways Um, Yes, it could do this, but I think um, you know there's a there's a quote in Game of Thrones that I really like that Varys says um, uh, uh, that you know uh, uh, that his his opponent, which was Littlefinger, could burn the city down if he could be the king of the ashes. And I think the Houthis are ready to burn all of Yemen in order for them to maintain not only just power but serve Iran's interests. So uh, Yemen here is really a pawn in this game. And I would say that yes, I think you know showing that type of decisiveness would be really useful, especially after Abhaz airport has been attacked, uh, but also in turn um, uh, really trying to, again, get the intern the international community to back this. I think part of the problem that we're seeing right now is that um, every article that you read makes it our responsibility, makes it the United States, Saudi Arabia, the Yemeni government's responsibility for what's going on in Yemen and just kind of absolves the Houthis and Iran. I think just educating people on what's going on and, you know, I I, would be helpful. The international reluctance that I see is is really problematic. I think the United States, other countries and on and in, in the UN Security Council um ought to take a greater position in holding Houthis and Iran accountable. Um I I think, you know, protecting the allies is a must and I think the United States should definitely signal um uh, the importance of protecting the allies because today the first thing that you that i read in um in the houthi news is that the united states failed to protect uh, the saudis in abha and that the patriot uh, missile system had also failed so houthi's were boasting their technical technological and military capability um and it's just an armed militia that came out from you know caves in the north of yemen uh, and and they're telling you that Saudi Arabia, with all its conventional power, cannot do anything.
4: And right. also, at
3: the end of the day, we have to realize that this is a a militia that is just as as dirty as Al Qaeda or uh, Daesh. I, I don't even call them the Islamic State; it's called Daesh. And the the um, the problem here is that you can't really combat. I mean, it it can't it can be a clean cut. You know, you can't just combat them. The the notion that we can eliminate the Houthis might be somewhat difficult. I think intelligence work, also like from within Saudi Arabia, empowering the Yemeni government, um, trying to encourage defections from the Houthi side, which a big number of of officials from the Houthis have have been defecting. Um, so, you know, just weakening the Houthi movement and then going back to strengthening democracy, governance, institutions in Yemen. No one talks about that. It's, it's kind of like uh, human rights abuses. Uh, it's kind of Sorry. like what
0: uh, Lord Varus says You wish to know where my true loyalties lie? Not with any king or queen, but with the people. The people who suffer under despots and prosper under just rule. The people whose hearts you aim to win. And maybe that's the strategy for Yemen, to win the hearts and the vote of the Yemeni people, rather than to try to destroy that's right. the usurpers. Uh, that, Fatima, that's right. thank you so much for joining us this morning.
3: Thanks a lot, Craig. Take care. After
0: these messages, we'll be back. The intellectual backbone of American Middle East studies has provided a rational excuse for individuals trying to promote an anti-American agenda. We see that those individuals who are in Islamic studies and American Middle East studies programs at some of the most major American universities find themselves justifying the behavior of America's enemies overseas and promoting domestic threats that harm us here at home. If you want to go and learn more about Campus Watch, the Reader's Digest of American Middle East Studies, check us out on Campus Watch at www.campus-watch.org. Welcome back to Middle East Forum Century Radio here on WWDB 860 AM. I'm live, Greg Roman with Gary Gamble, and our next guest will be joining us in just a little bit. But first, I want to mention a Middle East Forum campaign taking place today in Washington, D.C., in the annals of the U.S. Senate, where we have the nation state of Qatar having a vote of disapproval being brought forward by Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky, related to the sale of $3 billion worth of U.S. armaments in the form of 24 AH AH-64 Apache attack helicopters, which are on the tender to be sold to the Qatari government. Gary, why shouldn't we be selling attack helicopters to Qatar?
1: Well, I think the main reason is that that Qatar uh, opposes most of our allies in the region. They're they're, they're, uh, in a dispute with the Saudis and the UAE. Uh, partly because of their uh, close relationship with Iran, partly because of their sponsorship of the Muslim Brotherhood, and of course the Muslim Brotherhood affiliates raised trouble throughout the region. Um, and I think the, the thinking is is that. The, uh, oh, and the thir- the th- third item is, is the use of uh, Qatari state-run media, most, most notably Al Jazeera, to uh, incite instability around the region.
0: So, so here's the the picture that I'm going to cast for you. You have an anti-Semitic, anti-American, anti-presidential, pro-Muslim brotherhood, pro-ISIS, maybe not pro-ISIS, let's call it uh, uh, pro-extreme or or less extreme elements of Daesh, uh, uh, funder of Hezbollah, partner of Iran, every bad thing in the Middle East anti-American book sitting in Doha.
1: They have fingers in all the wrong pies.
0: And only, uh, I think it's about 15 miles outside of the capital, you have the largest American combined air and operations center, I think it's called CAOC is, is, the, uh, is the, the, the derivative for it, which uh, has something around 100 different missions which are being ran every day with American air power, looking over Syria, looking over Iraq, flying missions to Afghanistan. So you have these two uh, extreme polarities. The, the center of American air power in the Middle East and the center of anti-American resentment, at least casting it in the capital in the same country. How do those things balance out?
1: Um, well, they, they shouldn't balance out. The fact that the Qataris are able to, 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 you know, play both sides of the game is, I mean, you have to concede it's brilliant that they've managed to do it, but, you know, I, I'm tired of... Uh, opponents of U.S. interests in the region being smarter than we are. And the smart thing to do, I think, with Qatar uh, is to begin the process of disengaging, not only from our uh, armament of their uh, defense forces, um, but you know we, we have the, our largest uh, military installation in the Middle East in Qatar. And while, while I, th- I, I think it, it's, it's a very big thing to pick up and move um, a military installation, uh, we, we, we just signed an agreement to upgrade it. And, and I think w- we have to let them know that continuing down this path, there's certainly not going to be any, any future upgrades to the base. And eventually we're going to have to consider uh, reconfiguring our uh, where we deploy our military assets.
0: And we have options in the United Arab Emirates. We have options in Saudi Arabia, maybe less so in, in Saudi Arabia. I still remember the Kobar bombing. That took place in the 90s, which was, you know, even though it was instanced by Al-Qaeda, I don't know how friendly the Saudis will be towards American air power still lying out of that region. It's a totally different region 30 years later than what was happening back then, but it could always swing back the other way. But here is what we will be announcing this morning. The Middle East Forum's campaign against Qatari malign foreign influence starting today in Washington, D.C. with us urging every U.S. Senator to vote in favor of Senate Joint Resolution 26, the effort to condemn and to stop the transfer of advanced American offensive arms, in this case in the form of Apache attack helicopters, to the Qatari government. We'll start off with this. The objective is to end the Qatari influence in the United States. Our strategy will be to increase our pressure campaign by forcing Qatar To capitulate to the demands of its allies to get back in line with the realm of what we consider to be the American objectives of responsible Gulf Cooperation Council states. We'll be having legislation, you'll be seeing our op-eds out there, you'll be seeing us appearing in the media, and most importantly you'll be seeing effective American grassroots activism against this despotic regime and its rulers. First, we will begin with the resolution from Rand Paul. Second, We will be demanding that Al Jazeera register under the National Defense Authorization Act requirements from August of last year that was signed by President Trump just across the river from us in New Jersey, where they must register as a foreign agent. Because as they admitted in an exchange of emails with Congressman Jack Bergman just yesterday, according to a Washington Free Beacon story, one of their representatives in the U.S. who actually has not registered. Under the Foreign Agent Registration Act, a firm called DLA Piper in Washington, D.C., acknowledged that the emir controls 100% of Al Jazeera as its subsidiary of a foreign government. We also believe that the Qatari should be punished for their continued trans- transit intransigent behavior in funding Palestinian terror groups, whether it be the transfer of millions of dollars a month to Hamas in Gaza, albeit with the uh, tacit approval of the Israeli government. I've got a big problem with, wh- with that, Gary. I think that we'll speak about that on a future program when I'm broadcasting live from Israel starting, uh, I-, I think, in two weeks from now. And lastly, we have to show that there's a benefit to the relationship between Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, the US and Israel as is is sort of a new Middle East quartet, replacing that of the Russians, the UN, and the EU and the United States. And the more that Qatar gets involved with these issues, and they try to disrupt what I think are responsible American relationships there. I mean, if you even go so far, the same lobbying firm, that represents Qatar in Washington DC, Mercury LLC, is also representing the Turkish government, and they also represent the Islamists in Tripoli, two client states of Qatar. This is ridiculous in terms of the amount of influence that they're able to cast over our country. And to speak about this a little bit more in depth, I'm very happy to bring our next guest, Nirvana Mahmoud, onto the program. A doctor and commentator on Middle East issues, Mahmoud started blogging and writing on the Middle East after the Egyptian revolution in 2011. She's contributed to several media outlets, including The Telegraph, Al-Manator, now Lebanon, Egypt's Ahram, and Daily News Egypt. In November of 2013, she was featured as one of the BBC's most 100 influential women of the year and has given talks on Egypt, women's rights, and radicalism to various institutions. Nirvana, welcome to the program.
5: Thanks for having me.
0: So, tell us a little bit about your background. How did you get involved in Middle East commentary beyond the bio that we gave to you?
5: Right. I'm interested in politics since childhood. I wanted to, you know, I followed history. I was fascinated with the history and the landscape, political landscape of the region since very young age. I wanted to study political science, but my mom had a nearly heart attack when I told her I want to do that. Uh, she just said that in Egypt there is no future for this kind of stuff so she wanted me to study medicine which i did and it was in actually in my favor because uh, in medical school you bump into every islamist you can imagine from <laughs> every political side of islamism and i wonder i talked to them I, we talked about how a future state will work and believe it or not the talks i had during uni uh, was actually the kind of discussion egyptian had in 2012 when morsi took over and become the president and the whole shortcoming of the Muslim Brotherhood, which was evident to me when I was in Yeni, become evident to the rest of Egyptian in 2012. Then I traveled the region after I graduated and went to England. Uh, I, traveled, I, I came back and I toured the region from east to west, including I- Iran and including Turkey. And then I started blogging after the revolution.
0: And now you're a columnist at Al Hora News, correct?
5: Yes, absolutely. And, uh, I and, work in al hura now and I try to write the same article in Arabic and then in English in my blog.
0: And, and we've been following your writings and you really have unique perspective having risen in Egypt, having finished medical school right there at the uh, height of the revolution, leaving and touring the region. So there's a few countries that I want to run by you and if you can give us your analysis of the direction they're headed in and, and then at the end tell us is it good for America or is it bad? So let's first okay. cover Egypt. We have President al-Sisi now in, um, I I think he was uh, right now on the track for for getting a second term. He may be able to extend that by another decade or another 12 years. What direction is Egypt going in? Are they still fighting an Islamist problem? And is it good for the United States?
5: I think it is uh, overall. uh, Sisi is obviously a lot of people like him or dislike him because, uh, you know, if you want them, the democratic past in Egypt or no, nobody wants a president to stay for uh, longer term. But that is a different issue to answer your question about whether it is good to America or not. I think it is. I think that uh, whatever ills and, and criticism for Sisi, it is for local domestic reasons. But, uh, reasons. But for America, I think he's a loyal ally, and I think he is doing hard work to fight Islamism, which is not easy and very different way of fighting for the egyptian army which has to recondition its uh, traditional way of fighting to find a counter um, a terrorism attack in sinai you have to remember that egypt is fa- is having bo- uh, d- does have borders with libya and sudan and both are facing turbulence and both have islamism which is uh, um, uh, ongoing there for years and even decades So Egypt is facing a very uh, crucial and strategic fight Uh, and I think it's crucial for the United States to help on that aspect while promoting democracy and human rights as well.
0: So there was an article that came out in Foreign Policy about six months ago saying that while el-Sisi has uh, doubled down in his fight against Islamists in the Sinai Peninsula and also on the Libyan borders. I think there was airstrikes that were ordered by the Egyptian Air Force or that he ordered the Egyptian yeah. Air Force to carry out against Libyan targets after a massacre of Coptic Christians in um in uh, uh Libya or that emanated from Libya but that took place in Alexandria. But his managing sure. of the Egyptian economy is something that's less well off to be seen. He's reintroducing statism, there's the military control of a lot of the Egyptian economic institutions. What's your report card in terms of him being able to manage economic stability in Egypt?
5: Well, I was very disappointed with the with foreign policy to publish the article you, you mentioned. Uh, the article headline was Egypt economy is collapsing, which is far from the truth. Uh, the World Bank report is saying a lot uh, about that may, there is a lot of progress uh, and it's on fiscal level uh, Egypt have uh, President Sisi have tackled the economy from its roots and there is a lot of evidence to say the economy is improving the problem is that this improvement is not uh, tickling to the public but because of several reasons which think it is related to democracy as the article is trying to mention we have to mem- remember the background of the writer of the article he, he is a, he's an islamist he served in morsi government and he is talking from a, a guy who is having grudge in fact i feel he's just saying i wish the economy is collapsing uh, rather than having hard facts to prove that the economy is collapsing the economy is best shape, but it is improving, and there is uh, a lot of sign. I go to Egypt regularly, and I could see how 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 the country has improved dramatically from the 2012 time after the revolution, when the economy was near standstill because of all the unrest. Yes, there are a lot of things to happen, and there is a lot of uh, area which need focusing on. Uh, But that is a different issue, and it should not be labeled as collapsing because collapsing is a different definition. And there is no proof whatsoever that that is happening. Let's
0: uh, let's agree to call it a work in progress. He uh, is being dragged. He's he's being dragged between two different uh, points on a board. One is that they're trying to make structural reforms that allow them to get access to aid from the International Monetary Fund, but at the same time, some Egyptians can't even afford cooking oil. So there has to be a, a middle of the road approach to be able to get aid sure. down to the everyday Egyptian. I mean, the population is exploding, um, and and Absolutely. there's water resource I, I reforms. Can
5: tell you, yeah. Oil is available. <laughs>
0: no, no, I'm 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 just I'm making a a, a metaphor here, sure. rather rather than uh, sure. rather than trying to, to cast just the, uh, the the great pale over Egypt itself. But I want to take something that you said in that in that commentary and then extrapolate on that point, and then pivot to Cutter for a second. Uh, Mm -hmm. You said that the author of this article had served in the Morsi government. He was an Islamist and he was using a Western perch and an American magazine to take on an Arab uh, uh, country. And we see that Al Jazeera and that Qatari uh, plants and and agents and foreign influencers are doing the same thing very much in the United States, criticizing Qatar's enemies, pushing for... Uh, uh, the American disconnect with Saudi Arabia, using their media platforms to assault um, the crown prince of that country, whether he deserves it or not, it's a different subject, okay? But they're using their platforms that they have available in the West to attack their enemies in their region. What's Qatar up to these days? I mean, we we have this campaign that we were just discussing where we're just trying to stop Qatari encroachment on American interests. But what do you think is the biggest problem that Qatar faces, faces, uh, poses to the region?
5: Right. I think what is happening in America now, and if I may comment on that, uh, is, is something we suffer from in the Arab world, which is the monochromic view of the political scene. Uh, there is some people, especially on the liberal and leftist side of America, who decide to look at things in binary. Where is the villain? Where is the good guy? So if the dictators are the villains, then the others are the good guys. So they don't like CC. So anybody opposing CC is automatically taken uh, as someone good, or so, uh, his word is more reliable. And unfortunately, that's what is the Foreign Policy magazine have done when they agreed to publish that post. I, I could tell you if I pub- if I wrote that post, uh, they probably would reject it. But because it is written from a guy who is linked to Morsi, somehow they saw it as more credible. Uh, what is alarming? It's not just that. What is alarming is that they presented the, uh, the, the writer uh, in a very corrupt way. They just said he served as a minister in Morsi government, the last democratic president of Egypt. I found that is chopping uh, is the facts into half without mentioning that the Muslim Brotherhood or Islamism is, uh, in fact, is not the right way to present someone. To make the reader make his decision on the piece, you have to get to shed some light on the background of the writer. Without it, it looked like in a neutral way and a way to somehow deceive. In, If I may, I'm sorry to use this word, but I cannot think of any other way to deceive the American public because they make him look credible. Uh, to serve in a previous government
0: and this this, is, is, why, this is what this is what this is what the qatari this you're what you're saying is is that this is what the qataris are doing they're using uh, individuals who may seem credible to but, the american he, people
5: he it was agreed with with the outlet, and that is a bit I found it alarming. I have I I am fond of foreign policy, and I have few loads of respect of all many articles who wrote there. Uh, that uh, just nothing to do with my criticism. I just wish, and it is not the only one. There are uh, articles in the Guardian, in, in the British UK Guardian newspaper, who did the same present uh, writers without shocking the background that he is in a Muslim result. Uh, So it is a trend, not just in America. Uh, I just pleading using your uh, forum to plead with the American policymakers, pundits, reporters, whatever, not to look at the Middle East in such monochromic way. The, the, The reality is 50 shades of gray. There is not just black and white. There is no such as the good guys and the bad guys. The Muslim Brotherhood and this, during that minister when he served during Morsi government, the Muslim Brotherhood government was seeking um, uh, contact with the IMF, trying to convince them to give a loan.
0: Nirvana, to- I, I don't want to get us uh, uh, off track here, but I sure. do want to discuss this this Qatar issue. I mean, what I've seen, and I think my my uh, co-host, co-host here, Gary, can concur, is, is that wherever mm-hmm. there is an Islamist in the Middle East, the Qataris have their finger in the pot, as he said earlier on in the program. I mean, they sure. provided financial backing to the Morsi government at its outset. They're now, as you point out on your own Twitter feed, backing the Turkish economy. They're backing the Islamists in Libya. They're getting closer to sure. Iran. What threat does Qatar pose to American allies in the Middle East?
5: I think the threat is that, uh, is, is the lack of clarity. And sometimes... Uh, being uh, beautifying the truth of Qatar. Uh, I don't mind if Qatar is saying, hey, we made a strategic decision to back Islamist group and this is what we stand for, then it will be up to America to take that or leave it. But Qatar go to America and say, we are an American ally and we back the democratic forces in Egypt, which is, in my opinion, a very disingenuous statement. They don't present those people as Islamists. They present them as pro-democracy and pro-human rights, which is far from the truth. So Qatar is playing a double game. It's not just backing the Islamists, but also beautifying Islamism in the United States. And I found that very, very dangerous. The United States has to make an informed choice of who is the kind of people they are dealing with in the Middle East and Qatar deliberately not doing that. Um, if I made about a, about Qatar, uh, let me just add something which is not relevant to Egypt, but is relevant to its crisis with its neighbors. Uh, Qatar, after Mecca there was a summit in Mecca about the Iranian threat in the region, and Qatar came two days after the summit, claiming that they are not happy with the final statement of the summit, and the Qatari foreign minister said, that the summit is implementing the U.S. policies in the region without considering uh, Iran as a neighbor—that was his exact words. He's but acting now, as the spokesperson that,
0: for the Iranian regime.
5: I think that's exactly. That, uh, and then after after that, they go to America and say, "We are your allies in the region." I think that is not the fact. The, the way right. of considering what a lie is. Is not seriously what a ally should behave.
1: I think. That, I think in America that there's a certain amount of, has been a certain amount of grudging respect for for Qatar, even even though they you know do some troublesome things. That it it it's you know a fiercely independent you know emirate that goes against the grain of of, of uh, you know some bigger Arab countries. But the fact is, I think that the example you just gave shows that. No, if the if if the Iranians say we didn't like that, they'll reverse themselves. Like they're not a they're not a fully sovereign. uh, They're they're not fiercely independent. They're not even fully sovereign if they're reversing themselves in that kind of way simply because the Iranians express displeasure. So and that makes them even more dangerous. You know, if Qatar was fiercely independent, then I would say, well, we can. We, we can deal with them. We're a fiercely independent people, too. But if they're an, uh, essentially becoming an Iranian client state, uh, client state, then that, that's much worse.
0: Nirvana, thank you. N- Nirvana, uh, we have to get going. Okay. We no. only have about two minutes left in the program. We have to give our ending credits. But I hope you'll no, join no. us in a future program. Absolutely.
5: But can I say Qatar cannot afford to be a fiercely independent. They are too small to be fiercely independent. Right.
0: Thank you. Thank you. And maybe if we see the Saudi plan, they'll become their own island state rather than a peninsular state. Nirvana Mahmoud. <laughs> and that brings Thank us you. to the last two minutes of our program. Uh, Gary, I have to reiterate, this campaign that's taking place that's been originated by the Middle East Forum, backing Senate Joint Resolution 26, the discharge petition to try to get it for a full and open debate in the U.S. Senate does two things. The first thing it does is it allows us to bring the Qatar debate to center stage in the U.S. Senate. The second thing that it does is it puts every senator on notice and gives them an opportunity to vote. Are they in favor of the American direction, getting closer to this evil emirate, this menace to Middle Eastern society, Or are they going to actually back them and say, you know what, let's put the sales and armaments of U.S. equipments and and, and, uh, material ahead of what I think is one of our major ideological foes in that region, even though we do have our largest air base there. I want to thank Lisa Barbunas, our technician, our audio assistant, and also our producer, Delaney Janczyk, Gary Gamble the co-host of the Middle East Forum, and myself, Greg Roman, your host here, wishing you all a great week, a little bit of more peace in the Middle East, or war, depending on what will happen. We'll certainly talk about it next week, and we'll see all you next Wednesday. Middle East Forum Century Radio, signing off.